0: Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Peacock. I'm recording this today in Crescida Butte, Colorado. I'm looking out the window. The aspens are turning. The sky is brilliant. And I'm here. I'm just about to start what I'm calling high mountain running camp. Four of my very dear friends are arriving, and we're going to spend the next few days running, hiking, biking, and this is my attempt to improve self care. A couple weeks ago before I left, one of my patients said, Wait, Dr. H, you just went on vacation in August. You're leaving again. And I said, Yes, I'm leaving again because I have to take care of myself so I can better take care of you. And as you listeners know who've worked your way through these Back from the Abyss episodes, I have not always been the best at taking care of myself. So, age 54, I'm working on it. So this is a really cool place to record. And before we jump into the mini episode, I wanted to read a couple recent emails that I got that I thought you all might be interested in. Here's the first email. Hello. I found your podcast through Leah Barrett, and I was intrigued because my brother has battled mental illness most of his adult life. He's had many ups and downs, And the constant problem for him was going on and off his meds. He hated the way they made him feel. So he tried to go without them, and then used meth when he couldn't battle anymore. It was the cycle, and his delusions always told him to jump. He jumped 15 years ago and became paraplegic, and jumped several times after that whenever he had a psychotic break. Sometimes he was not able to jump, and he called that being blocked. The last two years have been the best. He had a regular medical team, took his meds mostly, went back to school, was about to graduate with his BA. He even quit smoking, which he'd never done. He had his 40th birthday, which was a major milestone for him, and all of us were in shock when we found he'd used meth and ended up in a psych ER a couple of weeks ago. We were sad because we knew this would be the start of another downward spiral, but we didn't know how quickly it would happen. We usually had time. The next day, after being released from the hospital, he jumped to his death. His medical team was shocked, and his psychiatrist had visited him and talked for him for 20 minutes, just hours before, and he said there were no signs. I'm writing you because although we were shocked because of how well he was doing, we did know this was always a possibility. I was wondering if you know of any organization that does research for coming up with better medications. I think if there weren't so many side effects from the meds, he may have stayed on them and lived. He suffered and battled the voices in his head for so long. He really tried, but couldn't overcome it. Wow. Yeah, thank you for that email. Um, Yeah, a couple of thoughts I had. You know, obviously, I don't know the details of this treatment, but um, first thing I wonder is, was her brother ever on clozapine? So again, you regular listeners will know that Clozapine, on average, is the most powerful and effective antipsychotic and mood stabilizer. But it does have some very significant side effects in folks. And that made me think of the second thing was, A Wonderful Brother was ever on injectable antipsychotics. And I would argue that the most underused treatment in psychiatry are the monthly injectable antipsychotics. And they tend to have few to no side effects, really well tolerated, very effective the problem, yeah, and i battle this all the time, the problem is trying to convince patients to do a monthly shot. Again, because a lot of the people that we're trying to convince um, of this have relapsing psychotic illness. So, um, so yeah, but there are people working on this, and not soon enough. And, yeah, I don't have any answers for you, writer, but, um, yeah, that's a powerful story, and uh, I'm really, really sorry for your loss. Email. I have a question about stimulants, if I may. I know they're prescribed for ADHD, but I've also known people with both anorexia and ADHD to be prescribed them, which seems contraindicated due to the appetite suppressant effect. And stimulants having a reputation for causing exacerbated anxiety symptoms. But the people I know who have both anorexia and ADHD have reported that the stimulants almost work in an opposite way calming the anxiety and racing thoughts enough that they're able to attune more to hunger and eat, or they don't notice the appetite suppression and it has not contributed to a relapse. Would you have any idea why that would be the case? My thought was perhaps it has something to do either with the boost in dopamine pleasure, reducing the anxiety, or the improved executive functioning, allowing them to better manage the thoughts, etc. But I'm not sure if that would be relevant or not. Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, it reminds me in the early aughts when I was at Brown for residency, I spent a year in the body dysmorphia clinic with Dr. Kathy Phillips. And she regularly used stimulants for people with even restrictive eating disorders and body dysmorphia. And she actually explained it like this. She uh, she said the executive functioning improvement on stimulants helped people stay focused kind of stay on the task and kind of push back the other Spinning, obsessive, um, you know, body obsessions and and eating obsessions. And she said, if they were used in low dose and judiciously, that they actually could be quite helpful. I don't remember her mentioning anything about the dopamine uh, idea, but I think that makes a lot of sense because dopamine, one of its many functions, is it's the it's the signal that you should pay attention. It's the signal that this is important. It's the signal that you should have more of this. That this is a, you know, a biologically, evolutionarily important thing. So I think that makes sense too. I, I have tried low dose stimulants with a few of my patients with BDD and eating disorders, and it is sometimes helpful. So yeah, it does seem contra um, contraindicated, but I think not in everyone. Chris and I were talking last week, and we, uh, we came up with a goal for Back From the Abyss. Chris said, I wonder if we could double the number of our listeners. And I said, I think we can. And so here's how we're going to try to do it. This is the September 2021 pledge drive. And no credit cards, no Venmo, no telethon. Here's what I'm just wondering if each of you might pledge. If you enjoy this, if you find this meaningful, helpful, what if you just pledged to find one other person to share back from the abyss with? Because if each of you found one person, we would double the numbers, and then Chris and I would be so happy. <laughs> and uh, as you know, this is a nonprofit ad- adventure. This is uh, this is our garage band, our passion projects. So really, we're just doubling the numbers because. That seems like a cool thing to do to spread these stories further and wider. So that's my one ask for you. If you would do that for us, we would be most appreciative. Okay, let's begin the mini episode today, which I've entitled, When Meds Don't Work. One of the most common clinical presentations I see is a patient who's been on this long, long list of medications and nothing has seemed to help. I actually really enjoy this challenge because a long list of med failures always begs the complicated question of why. Sure, the patient might have a bona fide medication-resistant mood or anxiety disorder, but more often than not, a history of medication failures points towards a hidden story, a missed clue, a false belief, or a discounting of coexisting medical issues. The most common reasons that meds fail are, number one, wrong diagnosis. Number two, trauma as the primary driver of symptoms. Number three, a missed medical issue, especially sleep disorder or dysfunction. Number four, inattention to hormonal status, especially perimenopause and menopause. And finally, Incorrect or unreasonable expectations for what meds can do. Let's go through each of these in detail. The psychiatric diagnosis is admittedly very fuzzy and complicated, but getting it wrong can lead down the path to medication failure. Common mistakes include using SSRIs for depression. And listeners at Back from the Abyss know that SSRIs are primarily anxiety meds, and they rarely do much for depression. Yet I've seen countless patients who come to me with this long, long list of SSRIs they've been on. And this is an exercise in futility. Another example of widespread confusion is when to use lamictal or lamotrigine. Now, many docs would call it a mood stabilizer, but it is clearly not. It is an antidepressant, which works best for depression with hypersomnia, or what I call black bear depression. Many patients are denied lamotrigine because they don't have quote-unquote bipolar disorder when the more relevant questions are, do they have depression with seasonal worsening and oversleeping? In the first season of Back from the Abyss, I did an episode called What's the Deal with Depression? in which I explained how depression is not a diagnosis, but rather a syndrome, a final common pathway with many causes and etiologies. Only some of the subtypes of depression respond to meds. Many don't. It takes time and curiosity and experience to understand what's driving a particular patient's depressive syndrome. And more often than not, when patients get put on quote-unquote antidepressants, such as SSRIs, which are not even really antidepressants, for subtypes of depression that are very unlikely to respond to most meds. Because there's so much overlap in psychiatric diagnosis and symptomology, diagnoses are often obscured and proper treatment is delayed with obsessive-compulsive disorder, for example, it can be missed for years by well-meaning clinicians and incorrectly labeled as panic disorder or depression or psychosis or even PTSD. OCD has very specific treatment, typically exposure and response prevention plus higher-dose SSRIs, and the various treatments for depression or panic or trauma are just very unlikely to help. Trauma is the great imitator And it probably leads to more medication failures than any other cause. Trauma can look just like unipolar or bipolar depression or panic disorder, OCD or personality disorder, or even ADHD. But if trauma is the main catalyst of a patient's depressive or vegetative or anxiety or sleep symptoms, most meds are going to do exactly nothing. The few exceptions would be non-benzodiazepine sleep meds and also propranolol a beta blocker, which is often very helpful in blocking the adrenaline fight-flight surges, which torment people with PTSD. Trauma commonly leads to depression, but trauma-fueled depression responds best to trauma-based treatments, such as EMDR or somatic therapies or ketamine or perhaps psilocybin and or MDMA. Now, These modalities are currently in phase 3 trials, as many of you know. Rarely will a trauma-induced depression respond to any of the long list of antidepressants, whether serotonin or epinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or Wellbutrin or Remeron or atypical antipsychotics or MAO inhibitors. None of them. In another mini-episode I did in Season 2, I shared my number one favorite most revealing eval question. What time do you wake up? For in this question, we begin to understand whether a patient is in a healthy circadian rhythm, whether they are likely to be getting morning light cues, which then lead to a healthy cascade of hormonal rhythms, whether they actually have a regular wake-up time, or are they living the life of a cat, sleeping on and off through the 24-hour cycle, and thus missing the connection opportunities and sunlight exposure of a healthy human life even with the correct psychiatric diagnosis, the right class of medication, and good psychosocial support, patients will not improve unless they begin acting like diurnal or daytime social mammals, getting up shortly after the sun comes up, then getting morning sunlight, and rejoining the streams of work and family. The thing is, meds just cannot overcome poor sleep habits. Sleep and mood and anxiety are inextricably bound. Show me someone who stays up much of the night and sleeps during the day, and I'll show you someone who will likely not have a meaningful response to meds unless they're willing to change their sleep patterns. The most commonly missed sleep-related reason for medication failure is undiagnosed sleep apnea. With sleep apnea, patients can never get sufficient deep non-REM or REM sleep Because every time they begin to dip into the restorative stages of sleep, they stop breathing, usually due to airway collapse, and they remain in a liminal, light, non-restorative sleep. I've even seen this with ketamine. A significant percentage of my non-responders to ketamine turn out to have undiagnosed or untreated sleep apnea. And I think part of this is because one aspect of ketamine's therapeutic action involves changing and improving sleep architecture, and patients who don't get uh, enough REM or non-REM because of sleep apnea, they just can't benefit from ketamine. We used to think that snoring was an annoyance, but now it's become abundantly clear that snoring is like chest pain. It's a symptom to take very seriously. It signifies obstructive sleep apnea until proven otherwise. And snoring strongly predicts psychiatric treatment failure unless properly addressed. Let's shift to talk about the role of hormones in medication failures. There are only five species on the planet that go through menopause. Four types of whales and humans. For if you think about it, menopause really makes no sense evolutionarily. Life is all about reproduction and leaving progeny. For the vast majority of human history, most women were dead long before they could go through menopause. Menopause in humans is largely a byproduct of the vast extension of the lifespan due to public health measures and modern medicine. So I think it's fair to say that for humans, menopause is not the normal state of affairs. Menopause is the burnout of the ovaries over decades, just as andropause is the exhaustion of the testicles over decades. And both menopause and andropause can have serious psychiatric impacts including the triggering or exacerbation of anxiety and mood disorders, and most relevant to this talk. Insufficient levels of estrogen and or progesterone and or testosterone can render psychiatric meds totally ineffective. Women are two to three times more likely than men to have clinically significant depression or anxiety. And while there are clearly cultural and trauma factors at work here, female hormones play perhaps the biggest role. It's not a coincidence that women tend to decompensate psychiatrically at the major hormonal transitions of life, the onset of menses, the postpartum period, perimenopause, and menopause. Adolescence is a stormy time for many girls, in large part due to hormonal fluctuations. The postpartum period is the highest risk time in a woman's life for severe depression, mania, psychosis, and OCD. Perimenopause is often characterized by increasingly severe anxiety and insomnia related to plunging estrogen and progesterone. And finally, menopause, for many, but not all women, can mark the onset of treatment-resistant depression, fatigue, cognitive impairment, and a general loss of well-being. Each of the three main sex hormones plays very important but different roles, many of which directly relate to psychiatric health and stability. Testosterone. It's the hormone of drive, not just sexual drive, but also the drive to compete and achieve. Testosterone is crucial for recovery from exercise. This is why athletes have been secretly injecting themselves with testosterone for decades. Men and women need adequate levels of testosterone, or they lose muscle mass, libido, energy, and overall drive. Estrogen is crucial for brain health, cognition, sexual functioning, and cardiovascular health. And for some women, adequate levels of estrogen are critical for mood stability. One of the most common reasons that perimenopausal and menopausal women don't benefit from psych meds is that they don't have adequate baseline levels of estrogen. Yet this seems to be very poorly known, for I regularly see women with a long list of psych med failures who've never been on any form of hormone replacement therapy. Progesterone is the hormone of pregnancy. I think of it as the hormone of calm and sleep- The kumbaya hormone. Whenever progesterone levels plunge, such as at the end of the menstrual cycle or or after giving birth, and finally during the latter stages of perimenopause, women are often plagued with worsening anxiety and insomnia. Again, psych meds are often not that effective for sleep or anxiety if the progesterone issue isn't first addressed. Not all women need hormone replacement therapy. But a significant fraction of women will do much better psychiatrically if they're on estrogen and or progesterone and or testosterone. For men, too, hormonal status is critical. A subset of men, starting in their 40s and 50s, will begin to find themselves with an emerging listlessness, a loss of libido, declining drive, energy, and overall well-being. Now, some of these men will go on antidepressants, and typically at best, they will get moderate benefit. And this is because their depressive syndrome is being fueled by andropause, the steady decline of testosterone that diminishes most aspects of well-being. Andropause is greatly exacerbated by poor or insufficient sleep. Note that hormonally healthy men often awaken with an erection. This signifies the release of testosterone in the early morning sleep cycles. Additionally, Excess belly fat also tends to increase estrogen levels in men, which then leads to declining testosterone. In the early years of my career, I would typically refer my patients back to their PCP or gynecologist for hormone replacement therapy, but I got so much kickback and resistance from the other docs that I just began to take over this role myself. The psychiatric benefits and importance of HRT, unfortunately, seem to be like a tightly held secret. And this is hurting countless patients, and relevant to this episode, it's just leading to a mountain of medication failures. The final reason that I see for psychiatric medication failure is unfair or confused expectations. I remember this seminar we had in our first year of residency where the attending said, he said, think of human psychological and psychiatric health on a continuum of negative 5 to plus 5. He said, a lot of psychiatrists are content to pull people up from negative 5 or negative 3 to pull them up to zero, with zero representing no active symptoms. But he said, I challenge all of you to try to bring people to plus 3 or plus 4 or plus 5. And he said, that's not going to happen with meds. You know, meds and ECT and even ketamine, those potentially can bring people up to zero, but it's not going to make people happy or healthy. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. And let me just use a couple of prototype examples. So um, with Lamotrigine, which I use a lot of because it's such a safe and effective med for people. I, I give people very clear expectations. I say, look, assuming we're using the slow normal titration on about day 16 or 17, you might notice improvement in energy. You might find that you are um, less sad, less hopeless. And then by the time we bump up at day 28, within two or three days after that, you should feel... Even less sad, less hopeless, suicidal thoughts should disappear, ener- energy should improve. But we're not looking for happiness. That comes later. And same thing with, with ketamine. You know, When I'm talking to people about ketamine sessions, I say, look, best case scenario, the ketamine treatment will either decrease or eliminate your suicidal thoughts, dial down obsessional thinking, improve your energy, um maybe help you cognitively, but again, it's not going to make you happy. That comes later. And let me just share a little anecdote. And I think I may have shared this in season one, so I apologize if folks have heard that, heard that. But a couple of years ago, I had a guy come in and do three IV ketamine sessions, and he had been super depressed for years, basically living in the basement, getting high and doing nothing for like 10 years. And he called me after his three ketamine sessions, and um, he said, yeah, it's not working. I'm not happy. And I said, what do you mean? And so we talked some more and he said, well, I have been to the gym and I've been looking for a job and I've been working on my resume and I'm going to go on a date and I've been taking my dog on walks, but I'm not happy. I'm just not happy. So it clearly didn't work. And um, I mean, it's kind of a funny story, but it's also kind of sad because I think this represents a really common misconception with with medica- medications or ketamine, that people, that the end result is going to be joy or happiness. No, that, that comes later. And I think that's because medications, at best, they're like a type of fertilizer for the garden of you. I mean, thinking that great fertilizer is going to produce a wonderful garden, that's deeply mistaken. Meds can help with sleep, obsessional rumination, energy focus, suicidal thinking, psychosis, but that's not going to make you healthy or happy. A healthy, happy life comes from having meaning and purpose, feeling needed and appreciated, having people you trust and love, being outside in nature and moving our bodies and living true to our daytime diurnal social tribal nature. This is how the garden of you grows and flourishes. Meds can sometimes jumpstart that process, but the magic is in the doing. Because remember, mood follows action. The day-to-day decisions to get up or to stay in bed, to connect or disconnect, to move or to stay still, to go outside or stay with our screens, each decision toward healthier action tips the needle away from depression and anxiety and toward health and even some times of real happiness and even joy.